If you've been following in this series, you'll know that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has explained to us that we are blessed and that we should be blessers. We are richly blessed in Christ. Heaven has emptied its storehouses of blessing on our lives with no exception. Anyone in Christ has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is nothing left for God to give. He has given it freely to us all in Christ. And the appropriate response that Paul shows us is that we are to bless God. We are to live lives of worship and praise and adoration to God our Father for the way in which He has blessed us. You'll also know that as Paul prays for the Ephesians... He makes clear that the primary domain, the primary sphere, the primary area in which this blessing is most fully realized in our lives, and the primary domain, sphere, area in which our blessing of God is most fully actualized is the church. As Paul prays in response to his opening eulogy, he mirrors the truths that he gives us there, but he starts to introduce more explicitly and more fully the doctrine of the church. And one thing that he makes plain to the Ephesian Christians and in turn to us is that if you want to know in all of its fullness this blessing that we have received in Christ, And if you desire to live your lives in a way that you are truly blessing your Father in heaven, then you locate yourself in the local church. You don't find yourself apart from it. You don't choose to neglect the gathering of the saints. You don't prefer other things. You make a wise choice to be all about the local church because that is where your blessing is most fully known and your response to God is most fully lived out. That's chapter 1 in a nutshell. And now we turn the corner into chapter 2, and Paul wants to, at this point, start to discuss some specifics. In particular, in chapter 2, Paul is concerned to speak about the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. In verse 11 through 22, he'll be dealing in uh, high detail, the reality of the Jews worshipping alongside Gentiles. If you cast your mind all the way back to the book of Acts, where we began our series, you may remember that in the book of Acts, in chapters 17, 18, 19, when Ephesus is in view, we realize that Paul's ministry there was to both Jews and Gentiles, to the church in Ephesus was made up of both. Certainly, the primary theological backdrop in Ephesus was a Gentile one, but that's not to say there weren't synagogues in that city. And so, as Paul went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he preached the gospel to the Jew first, and then he preached to the the Gentile, God gave him a ministry to both in Ephesus. Both Jews and Gentiles had received the saving gospel and had come into the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. In that sense, the backdrop is not all that different from many other 
New Testament epistles where there are many congregations in the first century having to work through the issue of worshipping with someone beside them who is of a different worldview, a completely different way of life, at least formally. The Jew and the Gentile were essentially aliens to one another in the first century, and now they find themselves siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, gathering around the communion table together, singing songs of praise together, praying together and for one another. How are they to do this? And what Paul wants to stress to them is that they are, all of them, in union with Christ. There is no distinction. Paul will get there towards the end of chapter 2. He will get to make the point that Jew or Gentile, you are one with Christ and you ought to be one with each other. Verse 18 of this chapter. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens speaking to the Gentiles there. But rather... Jesus came, verse 17, preaching peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jew and Gentile alike have received a common salvation. You're no different. Regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, it really doesn't matter. You are unified by one common gospel. That's where Paul's headed in this chapter. It is a chapter that will exhort them toward unity. In order to get to making that point, Paul has to first lay some groundwork. He has to first lay a theological foundation so as to be able to make that argument. And the theological foundation that Paul feels burdened to make is to point to our common lifelessness apart from Christ. Paul introduces his argument by stating the truth, chapter 2, verse 1, you all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, whether you are slave or free, man or woman, old or young, we all share out with Christ a lifelessness in our sins. That is Paul's point as he opens up this argument, and that is what we'll think through this evening. Verse 1 is perhaps a well-known verse to you. It's one certainly that I find myself talking about often to remind people of the state of the sinner apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus, namely that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We mentioned it even this morning. We didn't have a slight pulse. We didn't have a weak pulse, but it was there somewhere. We didn't have an inclination towards the things of God. We didn't have thoughts of Him, but the language is as plain as it ought to be. We were spiritually lifeless apart from Christ. There was nothing in us of any spiritual value. There was nothing in us of any spiritual life. We were dead, utterly lifeless in, Paul says, 
trespasses and sins. Those two terms are near synonyms. We shouldn't labor too hard to separate them, apart from simply noticing that they do show us two sides of the same coin. A trespass has the idea of stepping over a defined line. We've transgressed, we've gone beyond a stated principle, a stated expectation, whereas a sin, as I'm sure you're aware, carries with it the idea of missing the mark, of falling short of a stated expectation. The trespass has it the idea of going too far, and the sin has the idea of not quite making it. And so by combining the two, Paul gives us a very robust and fully developed notion of our failings. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were emphatically dead. There was no life within us. And just to be clear, when we read of that idea, trespasses and sins, it is not the case that there was a known standard God has made his will clear. It is in the hearts of men. And and if we were an archer with a bow, pulling back the bow so as to shoot the arrow at the target, it is not the case that apart from Christ, we shoot that arrow and it just happens to miss the bullseye. We can sometimes think about our sin like that. Theologically, the reality is this. The target has been made no. The standard has been clearly set forth. It is in the hearts of men. We are the archer with the bow and the arrow. And seeing the target, we willfully turn around and shoot in the opposite direction. It is not the case that we were trying to hit the spot and we happened to miss. And for that reason, God declares us guilty. That is not the case of being out of Christ. But rather, the reality is that we were rebels, enemies of God, knowing the target, knowing the standard. We were willfully turning away and shooting purposefully in the opposite direction. We were rebellious against God's will. And notice, Paul hasn't yet finished the phrase. He goes on to say, in which you once walked. So I love now pondering the picture. Paul's opening verse of chapter 2 is of dead people walking. Dead people choosing to progress in their sin. Lifeless sinners choosing to keep going on in their rebellion. There is this cumulative effect of living outside of Christ where your sin keeps getting more and more and more against your name because each and every day you are choosing the same path and it is a path that is completely opposite to the direction of God's will. You were not able to change your direction and neither did you want to. That is the common ground that each and every person on this planet shares save the Lord Jesus. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. If there had been any 
resistance to that teaching in the church in Ephesus, if anybody in the congregation had perhaps maybe come up to the preacher after the sermon and said, I just have one question. Paul anticipates. Paul anticipates such objections. He fends off the questions before they come because what he then does in the next few verses is to give three evidences of our dead, lifeless state. He gives us three evidences that show us just how dead we really were, just how entrenched in our trespasses and sins we really were, just how common our state was apart from the grace of the gospel. So I want to work through them this evening, the three evidences of our dead, lifeless state before Christ saved us, beginning with our alliances. One way in which we know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, choosing to walk in them was because of our alliances. Paul says, you were following the course of this world. In Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into God's creation. When sin entered into God's creation, it was not restricted to Adam and Eve alone. They were the guilty party. They caused the transgression. They ran headlong towards their particular sin. And as sin then entered into the created order, it wasn't restricted to them alone, but rather the entire cosmos came crashing down. Adam stood as the head of God's created order. God had appointed him as the head of the created order. He was God's representative. And thus, as God's chosen representative failed, the entire cosmos came crashing down. Which means, just by way of example, the stars do not shine in the evening sky tonight as they once did in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The most glorious sunset that you could ever find on planet Earth is but a faded sepia image of the sunsets that were known in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The most spectacular scene that you could ever find on planet Earth today is a jaded image compared to what creation knew prior to the fall. When sin entered, it entered into the human race and it pulled the whole cosmos down such that thereafter all the created order ever knew was the reality of sin abiding with it. Sin everywhere you looked. Sin tainted everything. As Adam and Eve had children and they had children, and they had children. All that creation ever knew was sinners thereafter. We see Cain murdering his brother. God expelled Adam and Eve out of the garden. He then expels Cain further east and gives him the instruction to be a wanderer and a sojourner, and Cain defies that commandment and settles. He dwells, and he builds a city, in defiance to God's command to be a wanderer. 
And then that first city comes together, and it is a city that is marked by sin. And thereafter, every expression of society and civilization for the history of mankind has been one that is defined by our sin. By God's grace, much good has been accomplished through many lives, but make no mistake, every single person born thereafter, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, has been a sinner. And that works itself out individually and corporately. Society's sin, civilization's sin, organization's sin. There is a corporate manifestation of sin after Adam transgressed. And what Paul says is that evidence that you were dead in your trespasses and sins is found in the fact that you chose not to go in a contrary direction. You walked with the course of this world. You chose to endorse the things that a sinful world endorsed. You chose to embrace that which a sin-filled world embraced. You chose to celebrate all that which a sin-filled world celebrates. Everything that was endorsed and embraced and celebrated by a sinful world was just as much your own endorsement, your own embracement, your own celebration. The very fact that you did not choose to chart a different path, but rather go along with the course of this world is testimony to the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And of course, going along with Paul's language, the reality is you could not have done otherwise. You were utterly dead. And so you were simply carried along according to your desires, your will, your choice. You carried along with the course of this world. You can see, by way of implication, when you consider these truths, just how vitally important it is for a Christian to strive to live a holy life. When you consider the realities of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you start to see how great a responsibility it is for Christians to strive for holiness. God makes plain that we are to live a holy life not in order to gain his acceptance. You already have it fully in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But you live out a holy life. As he has saved you, he then places a responsibility on you to live a holy life so as to mark yourself out as different from the world. You could not have done otherwise before he saved you, but now you can. God has given you a new heart. He has given you both a desire and an ability to obey him. And so his call for holiness in your life is no small responsibility. Do not, as a Christian, buy into this laissez-faire way of living. God's got me covered. Jesus has paid for my sin. I just don't need to worry about my obedience because it's all going to work out fine in the end. Jesus has paid for your sin, but he paid a great price and he wants you to look different from the world. He wants to make manifest your, his glory through your life. 
And the way God puts his glory on display in your life is primarily through your holy living. The word holiness means to set apart. To set apart. To be distinct. Don't boil down holiness to just a few areas of your life, but rather allow it to encompass all of your life. Strive to consider how it is you are living out a holy life in the workplace, in the home, amongst family and friends. Wherever you go, you should be living a distinct life. Before you were saved, you could not. Now you desire to and are able. And it is a serious call that God places on your life to be holy as He is holy. The evidence that you were not of his was that you weren't holy, that you followed the course of this world. Second evidence that we were dead in our trespasses and sins is by way of our authority, our alliances, and secondly, our authority. Paul goes on, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Back in Genesis 3, when Adam took of the fruit, of course, you know, he did so at the bidding of the serpent. Satan had come into the garden. He'd come in in the form of a serpent, the great deceiver. He had twisted God's word. He had prompted Eve to do likewise. In that moment, Adam and Eve were more faithful image bearers of Satan than they were of God. They were established as representatives of God. They were there to represent His will. And as the Satan, as Satan diverted their thoughts and led them to think along another path, they were better representing Him than they were God. They were image bearers, as it were, of Satan in that moment. And they took of the fruit and they trespassed and they bore the consequences. At that time, in some way, but perhaps we don't fully understand, this world was given over to Satan. God still reigns supreme. He is still sovereign over the entire universe. Satan does absolutely nothing to impugn or diminish God's sovereign reign over his creation. And yet, at the same time, in some way, according to God's wisdom, he gave to Satan dominion over this world. So that it is possible for Paul to write that he is the prince of the power of the air. We see this also in the book of Job. Satan comes to God. Note that. Satan comes to God. Satan has to ask permission to do something. They are not on equal footing. We see in those early chapters of Job that God still reigns supreme and Satan cannot breathe his next breath without the permission of God. And yet, in some way that maybe we can't fully understand, God has given Satan a form of dominion right now over this world such that he is able to bring harm against Job. 
We see it again in the Gospels. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Satan tempt Jesus. He tested him. And if you remember, that third test was of the nature, Jesus, I will give to you all of these kingdoms. Somehow, it is Satan's prerogative to give that as an offer, a genuine offer to Christ. This is mine to give, he says, if you would worship me. So we see that in some way, right now, Satan is the prince over this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. And in so much as anyone is out of Christ, not in Christ, he is doing Satan's bidding. Now, if you just ponder that for a minute and allow that just to sink in, that is a very difficult truth to embrace. If someone is not in Christ, they are doing Satan's bidding. Now, how can we say that? There are two things to keep in mind. Number one, the Bible clearly teaches there are two domains in which you might exist, and that's it. There are not three, there are not many. You're either in Christ or you're not. Those are the options. There are no more given. You are either in Christ, at which point now your heart and your life is wonderfully aligned with the will of God, Or you are not there, and you are now out of Christ, your sins are not forgiven, you stand condemned by a wrathful God, rightly so, and you are not doing His will. That's one truth to keep in mind. The Bible is very clear about that. The second truth to remind yourselves of is that Satan appears often as an angel of light. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Satan comes as an angel of light. Rarely does he appear as evidently as he did in the garden that day. Even there they were tricked by him. And yet we look at that chapter and think it is so obvious to us that he doesn't belong here. Rarely does he show up in that form. More often would he show up as an angel of light, looking and presenting himself as one who does good things and bids you to do good things. It is for that reason that you may look around at the world and see ostensibly many good people doing many good things. People who are giving charitably of their time and their energy and their resources and their whole lives for the benefit of others, standing all the while condemned by a holy God, people who are spending themselves for the benefit of others who seemingly are living out a very Christian life. That's exactly how Satan wants it. There is arguably nothing that pleases Satan more than to mislead these sons of disobedience such that they think they are on the right side of God by doing that which appears to be good. All the while they are doing His bidding because they are not in Christ. That is the defining factor. 
and nothing else. You can do all the good in the world and you still incur the wrath of God. You can do all the good in the world and God is not pleased with one jot of it. He is not pleased with one second of your life because it is never, ever our efforts that please God. The only way to bring yourself into the pleasure of God is to find in Christ a sufficient Savior. It is only when Christ has paid for your sins and His righteousness has been credited to your life that now you have the pleasure of God. And hear this, that you have His pleasure fully. Then you do have His pleasure and you have it fully and you have it eternally. You have it every second of every day. You will never not have His pleasure thereafter. Because it is rooted in, grounded in, the immovable, unshakable death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where God's pleasure is to be found in your life. In so much as that is not you, in so much as you have not found Christ to be a sufficient Savior, you do not have the pleasure of God, and everything you do is at the bidding of Satan. I would encourage you to think of the world in this way. We can get lost so easily in a society that treats Christians well, a society that doesn't persecute the church, at least not today. We can get lost amongst many, many cordial friendships with unbelievers. It's not wrong to have those relationships. I'd encourage you to have many relationships with unbelievers in your life, but we can get lost concerning the truth of their eternal destiny because they appear to be so good. They appear to be doing so much that isn't wrong, so much that we maybe wouldn't categorize as sin. You have to remind yourself daily of the truth of Ephesians 2, that they are Sons of disobedience, doing the bidding of the prince of the power of the air, and that is one evidence that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. The third and final evidence that Paul gives concerns our ambitions, our alliances, our authority, and thirdly, our ambitions, Paul says following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We had ambitions before Christ saved us that were not of him. Before Christ got a hold of our life, we carried out the desires of our body and our mind. We were held captive to our ambitions. There are at least two things to say about this third evidence. One is that it speaks of a lack of self-control. One of the characteristics of an unbeliever is a lack of self-control. 
There is no fruit of the Spirit in their lives, at least not genuine fruit. It is not fruit that has been wrought by the Holy Spirit. There is no Holy Spirit wrought love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. There is an absence of those things, and in that way you understand the self-consuming, self-imploding nature of sin. As the unbeliever has no self-control and yet has strong desires for that which does not honor the Lord, they keep chasing their sin and it keeps consuming them all the more. Sin consumes itself and it consumes the sinner. And this is precisely how lives are ruined by what began as looking to be some small offense. Something which on the outside did not look to be all that dangerous ends up ruining a person's life because of the self-consuming nature of sin. The other thing to note about this third evidence is that the desires themselves were not God-honoring. Not only does it speak of a lack of self-control, but it testifies to the fact The desires, the lusts, the passions, the ambitions of the flesh had no inclination towards God, had absolutely nothing to do with God's will. It is purely an expression of God's common grace if an unbeliever does something that in some way tangentially lines up with that which might happen to honor God. The charity worker is doing something which on the outside looks like that might please God. God is pleased when his children do such work. And here we are with an unbeliever doing such work. How? Simply by God's grace, not because their will is aligned with the Lord's. Their desires, if we were able to dig down deep enough, would found to be selfish, hateful not desiring to honor the Lord, but only ever centered on self. And so you see again, the wonder of the gospel is that which utterly transforms the heart. It puts Christ at the center of the person. Now the individual has Christ at the center of all that they do, all that they think, all that they will, all that they desire. There is a sense in which it may not even necessarily change all that much that you do in your day-to-day life. As an unbeliever, you played golf. As a believer, you played golf. I don't know why, but that was your choice. (laughs) I'm just teasing. But you see, as an unbeliever, that round of golf was offensive to God. Because it was not born out of any desire to glorify Christ. And yet now, within the freedom of the gospel, we can enjoy so many good things that God gives us. With Christ at the center, we can now enjoy the good things that he gives us. And now that activity, as simple as it is, is rendered holy unto the Lord and somehow honoring to him no longer an offense because of the gospel. And more than that, your very desires do change such that you strive to do that which honors the Lord and advances the gospel. 
Beyond the consideration of what our leisure activities might or might not be, we now have genuine desires for the advancement of the glory of Christ. We now have a genuine and real desire to lay down our lives, to pick up our cross, ready to die, if it would bring Christ more glory. He utterly transforms those whom he saves. And that transformation is a testimony to the work of the gospel. Or to put it another way, the absence of that kind of desire prior to your reception of the gospel was a testimony that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that is the prerequisite to salvation. That's exactly where you need to be in order to receive the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus. Until you have come to terms with your sin in the way that Paul speaks of it, then you can't receive Jesus as a Savior. If your view of your sin is not as absolute and all-encompassing as the one that Paul gives here, then you have received a different Jesus. If you believe that your sin wasn't a great thing, I wasn't proud of it, but there was much that I did that did please God and was aligned with His will. I did have His favor in some areas of my life. You have not arrived at the same view of sin as the Bible. And so as you embrace Jesus, you are invariably embracing a different Christ. You are saying that I find him to be sufficient in some areas and in other areas I don't actually need him. When you understand your sin in these terms, then you have the prerequisite to salvation. And this is exactly where the Jews and the Gentiles in Paul's day had understood they themselves had come from. They understood the all-encompassing nature of the cross in their lives. And Paul lays it out in order to say, if that is true of you, if you understand your sin in that way and by inference your salvation in that way, How then, when you gather together in worship, could you possibly have anything but love for those around you? That's the argument of this chapter, zooming out now as we understand where Paul is headed. Toward an argument for unity amongst the Jew and the Gentile. The logic that he is building is simply this. If you understand just how depraved you were in your sin, neither willing nor able as a sinner who was dead, if you understand yourself as that prior to your reception of the gospel, without any exceptions, Jew and Gentile alike, and you understand the common salvation that you have received, Not a different gospel depending on who you are. All have received the same salvation. Then, when you gather together, your heart should be overflowing with love towards one another. It is exactly the same lesson to which we are exhorted to this evening. As you look around, there are people in this room 
who have a different story to you. Their walk of life looked very different to yours. I praise God for the diversity of this congregation. How can you have anything but a deep-seated brotherly affection for one another because of who you were before Christ saved you and because of the common salvation that we all have received. May it be true of us that our love abounds for one another in our understanding of Christ. Let's pray to close. Our Father, we love you and we love your gospel. We praise you this evening for the saving work of Jesus Christ in our lives. As we have thought upon the reality of our sin, we are amazed at our salvation. We were truly dead, spiritually dead, lifeless, in our trespasses and sins, and indeed we walked in them. We followed the course of this world. We did the bidding of the prince of the power of the air. And we followed the inclinations of our minds and our hearts in our flesh. Great was our sin. It is true of every single one of us and you sent Christ to save us. Our salvation is the same. Our salvation is common. Every man, woman, and child that is found in Christ has received the same salvation, and that alone should bid us toward unity. May it be true of us that as we reflect upon the glory of the gospel, we love one another, forgive one another, embrace one another, lay down our lives for the good of one another. And may you be greatly glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.